that she's using on a large scale and easily scale them back even into a suburban backyard and turn your backyard into a food production machine and improve your food security. Uh, check them out today at BackyardFoodProduction.com. And for those that are kind of you know in your life that maybe aren't even preppers but they're more of the, the gardener types, this is a great uh, Christmas gift as well. Check it out today, BackyardFoodProduction.com. Next, remember, check out TSP Gear and TSP Copper. Uh, really cool stuff in the gear shop, really cool copper coins in the copper shop. Again, TSP Gear, TSP Copper. 13skills.com is rocking. Let me give you a status update on that. I mean, really rocking. Uh, we had about 1,100 members yesterday. Today we have 1,315 as of this broadcast. We crossed a big thing to me yesterday. It just looked kind of neat. I pulled up the site And it said 13,000 goal set, 13,000. It's not even now, but since uh, in less than 24 hours, we've gone to 14,312 goal set at 13skills.com. We're adding features. We're making the site better. We just got the merge feature, so we'll be cleaning up some of the repetitiveness in the skills. A lot of you might see your skills change, like you had physical fitness, and all of a sudden you'll log into your account, look at your skills, it'll just say fitness. That's because we had physical fitness and fitness, and we just merged them together. And we waited until we had the feature so that we didn't, like, just take away physical fitness and nuke all the stuff you set up. So we're working on it. We've also added an About Me section. I put up a, a blog post on the 13 Skills blog today about how to do that, how to update your About Me section. We'll keep making it better. Just understand, we're a small group here putting this site together. It's not going to be the next, next Facebook. It's not designed to work like Facebook. Just remember, any goal you set, you can put a link underneath it that says, here's where I'm documenting it. Go over to the Survival Podcast Forum. Uh, there's a link right at 13 Skills into the 13 Skills form. Start a thread. My journey with rabbit keeping. Link to that thread. Every time you do something with it, update it. It's very simple to have all, you know, or start a Flickr uh, photo stream. And every time you take new pictures of what you're doing, just add it to your photo stream. Link to that. If you're a YouTuber, create a playlist. Uh, if you're a blogger, create a tag on your blog, rabbit hutches or whatever it is you're doing, and link to the tag, ver and you'll, you'll be able to document it all. So I keep getting requests to add that. The site needs to be clean, fast, easy to use. And the primary thing 13 Skills is supposed to do, make you accountable to stretch yourself with new goals. And guys, some of you are doing this. Please stop slapping stuff in there you've already done and then saying, I did it. There's not that many people that have done that, but this is about goals for 2013. If you've already done it, set a new goal. Stretch yourself. Stretch yourself. If you want to tell people what you already know, and already know how to do, that's what we set the About Me section up for. We're going to be adding some more features like the ability to link to your blog, your top-level blog, or if you're a company owner, your company website, or just a couple of websites in your profile. That'll be added to like probably the social media area very soon. All right. So with that wrapped up, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You support the show. That's it on that today. You guys know Military Law Enforcement Peace Corps. You guys get a discount. Email me, service discount on the subject line. Tell me what you're doing, and I'll give you a discount. So let's get into it right away. Let's take that first call. Hey, Jack. How are you? Um, love the show. It's John from up here in New Hampshire. Um, I'm a MSB member. It's a beautiful thing. Hey, I just had a quick comment about relocating. I know you're always, uh, you're, you've been talking about it a lot lately because you're doing it, and you've been talking a lot about uh, HOAs and things like that. One thing I figured out here recently, um, due to me working in Massachusetts in a uh, fairly socialist town, I guess you could say, um, had to go to some board meetings and whatnot in Massachusetts and uh, some town board meetings. And I've realized that between where I live in New Hampshire and that town in Massachusetts, 
by going to the town board meetings, you can really figure out what the culture and the tone of the town really is. Because uh, up here where I live in Massachusetts, in New Hampshire, it's pretty normal. And when I go down there, it's pretty restrictive. I mean, any guy wants to change one thing about his business, and they shoot it right down, you know. So just a little tip out there for anybody thinking to relocate. Um, I'd pre- you know, I'm interested in your comments about that. I don't know if anybody's thought of it already. But, hey, whatever. Enjoy the show. Thanks. Bye. Actually, you know, it's not something I've really thought about because I'm such a, I'm not really interested in government type of guy. Uh, that generally I don't think that way and it's probably a big mistake. And I'd like to add to your observation with something that makes it really an interesting thing to be doing, um, when you're considering an area. And, uh, I just did a whole show yesterday. I was talking about setting up a community and we've been looking into that aspect of it. Like, you know, who's the county sheriff and things like that with a, a more rural, Uh, community, but when you look at more of like a little bit more density of a situation, getting into those meetings might be a really great idea. And here's why: I've always said when picking a place to relocate to, go talk to the neighbors that you're going to live around, and I think that's still a good idea, and get a feel for them. The problem with that, and you can see this in the day-to-day landscape, as I kind of traveled around the country, and not just in TSP-centric things, just going places, doing things, talking to average people in average places, um, I would have been hard-pressed to understand in any way, shape, or form how Barack Obama was going to win this this recent election because all I heard was how many people didn't like him and didn't want him. And I, I don't remember, I'm not a politics guy. I, I could, could care less which, what the name of the guy that's supposedly in charge of the country is because I know the corporations are actually running the country by funding both of the clowns that run. But just make it a point. The perception would have been in most places that you talk to people, and yes, I live in the South, but I traveled all over the country this year, that there's no way this guy's getting elected. And not only did he get elected, he did by a significant margin. Um, and I'm, again, leave the politics out of that. I'm making a point here that's important to understand for this local type of an issue. So my point is you could go to this neighborhood you're thinking of moving into, And you could talk to all the people in that neighborhood. You could find them to be quite like-minded, politically, spiritually, just day-to-day guys, people, folks, like you're looking to live around. And you might think this is a non-busybody neighborhood, and it may not be a busybody neighborhood. And if you're just going to live there, maybe it's not that big a deal if you look up and down the road and you see people can kind of do what they please on that street. But if you're, especially if you're going to be opening a business, like this guy was talking about, in that town where you're actually going to need a place of business or your intention is to run it from your home and there's going to be anything be, that would indicate there's a business going on there at all. This is critically important because everybody around you may go, yeah, it's great, it's fine, we like you, you, know, you can come here and do this and that, but that doesn't mean that the people that are in charge think the same way. And it's often the case that, especially at local levels of government, The people that are least involved are the least problem, and the people that are the biggest whiny, nanny, crybaby, blue-haired bitches are the ones that always want to be in government. Somebody just made up a thing of a quote that I made uh, on, on Facebook, and I kind of shared the photo around, and it's my picture where I'm behind the microphone they put across the top of it. You know, only I don't remember even exactly what I said. It was only... Something like, I think it was that only busybody assholes really want to control others. 
And then they put across the bottom, they naturally gravitate towards government, which apparently I said in a recent show. And that's the truth. So the people that go to the meetings and the people that run the meetings are the people that are most bent in that community toward regulating what other people do. And they're the ones with the power and they're one of the ones whose voices are heard. And you could go into a community and think, this place is great. People are very cool here. I like this place. But then the second you're trying to do anything, the people that are really in control show up and cause you problems. And I think that it is a look at the culture there. Who are the people that are active and involved? And, you know, this is, I think, why I kind of brought up my, my little picture the guy made of me. It is always people who want to control others that get involved up until the point where people are tired of being told what to do and normal people then step up and they only do it to prevent it. And in many cases you need to know, have, have, have they reached that point where the normal people are now stepping up and doing and getting active, being involved in government, letting their voices be heard because normal people don't want to. I think this is the most fundamental thing that we need to understand about why we have problems in a democratically elected republic. Normal people don't want to tell other people what to do. People with power trips, people that are whiny, nasally, whiny-ass little creeps, people that were the kid that was picked on in high school but never got over it. Okay, People that worry about what other people do. These are the people that go into government as a general course of action. And the level-headed people, this is why there's always less of them in government, they only go there when they're finally like, I've had it, I've had it. I'm running for town council to get rid of that idiot because I don't want this crap anymore. It's the same thing with HOAs. You know, home ownership associates. It's the same thing. The only time you get normal people on an HOA is when the blue hairs push them to the point they're like, something has to be done. And this is not a case to get more people into government. This is a case to scale government down. To reduce the number of people like that that have control over your lives. But yeah, I think you'll get a huge insight to who those people are in a community And what you're looking for is a community where the people that are doing the job are a little bit reluctant to be there. They don't really want the power. The best people in government, the best leaders in government, don't really want to be there. Because that makes it what? A service. Right? Not a job. Not power. And a lot of times in these local governance things, the people that are in these town councils, it's a stepping stone to become the mayor. And the mayor is a stepping stone to become a state rep. Right? People with that mindset, they're just, I'm going to work my way up into politics. Right? They're generally the worst of the worst. The best politicians out there that become leaders are the ones that almost have it thrust upon them. One of the best presidents we've ever had is so just kind of lost to history, even though most people have a very uh, positive view when they hear his name. Dwight David Eisenhower. Um, Dwight Eisenhower didn't really want to be president. He saw it as an obligation to be fulfilled. And this is a big thing that most people don't know about Dwight Eisenhower. Both parties went after him. Both parties equally courted him, even knowing everything he said. You know, And what Eisenhower told us when he left, and if you've never heard it before, 
Listen to Eisenhower's farewell address. The warnings of the country being taken over by the military-industrial complex, by the college research institutions being taken over by both the military-industrial complex and the corporate monopolies as well. And then look where we are. He was an honest man. He didn't want the job. Just saying. But great point, uh, really great point, something I'm going to start recommending to people in screening an area. Find the local town council meetings. Go to them before you make a decision and get a feeling for the type of people that are running the place. I really have a hard time understanding why I never you know, recommended that before. Thank you, sir. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Jack from Illinois. Uh, my question is, can a small amount of moisture ruin food stored in a five-gallon uh, food-grade bucket? I did my first bucket a couple weeks ago. It was rice and beans. cleaned it out uh, with a damp cloth. I dried it. I put the rice in, put the O2 absorbers in. Uh, after I pounded the top shut, I kind of got concerned because I wasn't exactly sure if I had dried all the water left on the inside of the bucket. Um, my five-year-old and my two-year-old daughters watched me through the bucket, and uh, looking at them after I was done, made my first uh, stored food bucket extra special. So uh, sorry if this is a new question, but uh, preparedness is new to me. Um, been listening for about eight months. And I've learned so, so much from your show. So thanks for what you do. Keep it up. Thanks. Bye. Well, you're right to like be concerned about moisture because your big uh, dangers, or let's say your big enemies of long-term food storage are heat, light, um, oxygen, and moisture. Those are your big four that you're trying to keep out. So you don't want too much moisture in anything. And one of the things you can do with any type of a dry good to help reduce the amount of moisture that may end up there or be absorbed into it, and anything that's dry or dehydrated, like a dehydrated pepper or a dry piece of rice, naturally absorbs moisture. So if you had a lot of moisture, your rice could swell up and, and all kinds of gnarly things could happen. But that's not what you got. What you got is a bucket with just possibly a little bit of residual moisture, maybe a little bit higher than the ambient humidity in the bucket itself from when you dried it out. And if you had stored something in there that way, like flour or salt, you could have issues with caking or even a giant block of salt, depending on how much moisture we're talking about. Rice is not going to be an issue, uh, especially with O2 absorbers. Uh, honest to God, dry rice you can probably store in an open bucket in the floor of your, your closet. And unless like weevils or something get in there, it's got years in it just that way. When you put rice in a bucket with an O2 absorber and put it in a cool, dark location, you've, you've created a product that will probably store with uh, full food value uh, for longer than you will store uh, as a human being. It, it's almost infinite. They say 25 years, but... If you had a bucket like that with 50, that was 50 years old and had been stored that way and you opened up and no insects or anything had gotten in there, I guarantee you that rice would be eatable. It, it really would. Um, now, here's the thing about rice with the moisture. Rice is kind of like nature's desiccant. And, and you know, a desiccant is something we could add in addition to um, a, um, a, what am I looking for, a uh, O2 absorber to help with moisture. So we could buy desiccants and that. But rice is like nature's natural desiccant. Uh, it takes a lot of moisture uh, to really do much to rice in, in any way, shape, or form. 
So, for instance, my grandmother had this little trick. Well, I remember when I was a kid. We lived in Florida. It's humid as you all get out in Florida. Well, inside all her salt shakers, uh, she would put just a few, you know, a little pinch of rice in there. And, you know, maybe once a year you'd dump it out and put a few more grains of rice in there. And that rice would effectively act as a desiccant. And whenever you went to use the salt, it was never caked up. You go over to somebody else's house in that humid environment, and it would be caked up. So I wouldn't really worry about it. If you're worried about it at all in the future, um, it, you, one of the big things that you can do is, again, get a, a commercial desiccant packet uh, of a size you know, fitting what you're doing and, and add that. But I, I think it is cool when you look at your kids and you put food away. I, I think that's the little thing you threw in at the end, and maybe it's the more important part of the call. Um, it, it gives you kind of a sense of why I'm doing this and realize that even if you don't need it until they grow up and they have their own kids and you have grandkids, that bucket of rice stored properly can probably still feed them too. I'm not really suggesting you leave it that long. It, you know, rice is something you use in your life. I'm not a big rice eater, but if you use it every one, you know, once a year, open a bucket and use it and replace it. Um, you, five, ten buckets that way and, you know, five, ten years. Uh, it's always rotated, and uh, you know, then you're eating what you store in store where you eat, and you know how to cook with rice. But I wouldn't sweat this one. But um, when you start looking at things like flour and salt, you got to be a lot more careful with what you're doing. Um, I've seen flour come out of storage and be a brick and ruined. I've seen salt be a real giant salt rock. All right, so you got to use a lot more caution with t storing that type of thing. But whole rice, especially white rice, wheat berries, um, shell corn, things like that, um, it's not anywhere near as critical because you have such a mass that you're, you're dealing with, with this ability to kind of regulate all of those things. If there's, if there's a little tiny bit of moisture um, in a bucket like that stored with rice in it, over time... That, that moisture will distribute almost completely evenly across the entire spectrum uh, of the rice. And it's such a minuscule amount to each grain that it's really irrelevant. Now, if you like put, put it in there with like, you know, you look in and there's water droplets. Like you could wipe the side of the bucket and you, it feels wet to your hand. That can cause problems. I'm thinking all you got here is you dried it out really good and then when you got done you went, well, it could have been a little damp. You know, and the best thing to do, honestly, is to let the bucket dry out in the sun before you fill it. That, that's the best thing. That'll get you the driest as long as the sun's out, right? Uh, so give it maybe an hour in direct sunlight. That's the best practice, but you'll be fine. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Ian in Arizona, and I have a question for Paul Wheaton on your expert council. I have a couple acres in uh, northern Arizona that I would like to put in a system of small swales on. The, the land has a, a fairly constant, gradual slope to it, and I want to encourage the water uh, that does fall uh, to soak into the landscape instead of running off. What I'm wondering is typically how, how high of a swale I would need and how far apart they should be spaced. Uh, like I said, there's an acre or two probably total that I would like to do, so it's going to be a fair amount of work, and the, the shallower a swale I could use, the easier it would be. But I'd like to hear either uh, Paul Wheaton's opinion or yours. Thanks. Love the show. 
What I'm going to do on that one is I'm going to give you my answer after I give you Paul's answer. You're going to hear from both of us today on that one. And today is going to be kind of myth-busting swale day. Uh, I'm going to do a little bit of it here. And then the last question that we have today is another question on swales. And I think a lot of what I say sometimes gets misinterpreted and misunderstood. So we're going to try to clear up. So if you've been a swale, I'm not quite sure today is going to be a great show for you. Great show for everybody else. But, Paul, let's hear your answer on desert swales. Hello, Jack and Ian in Arizona. This is Paul Wheaton, the Duke of Permaculture from permies.com. Um, I'm going to make a feeble attempt at answering your question. I want you to keep in mind, I'm more of a cold weather kind of permaculture guy. Uh, so the, the really warm stuff, that's, that's better for Jeff Lawton. But I'll still try. Uh, in fact, I was just talking to some folks about this stuff because I'll be teaching a workshop on earthworks in the San Diego area in early March. So this is pretty fresh in my mind. And even those guys, why do they want me to do this? Shouldn't they want to get some kind of warm season guy or warm climate guy? But, all right, small swales is what you're asking about. And my first response is, I want you to do big swales. I want you to do six foot tall, maybe even taller. I want to know about how much wind you got. I want to know what your soil is like. I want to know a whole bunch of stuff about your property. Now, you said it's got about two acres and a gentle slope. And, um, and so you're asking, like, you know, how high should you make these? And, and my response to that is, is, like, well, it's sort of how high and it's sort of how deep. Because in order to be able to add this kind of texture to your landscape, we're going to dig down and use that material that we dug down for it to kind of, you know, pile things up high. I'm going to assume you're going to bring in a track hoe to do this as opposed to going out and doing it all by hand. Um, but, hey, if you want to do it by hand, <laughs> more power to you. Have a workshop. See if you can get, like, 30 people to come out and help you dig it by hand. Um, so you're asking how high. I'd, I'd like to see things end up being at least six feet high. And, and now you're in a warmer climate, and so um, one of the things you're going to try and do is, like, make cold pockets. Can you, can you have cooler pockets? So uh, I, I like the idea of, of you're adding a lot of texture to the landscape in such a way that you're going to have some spots that end up being freaky hot and some spots are going to end up being freaky cold. Um, and and a, lot of, a lot of variety. A lot of, uh, so, so make your uh, swales go in all kinds of uh, crazy shapes. But, of course, swales have to follow contour as much as possible. <clears throat> um, you mentioned soak into the landscape. And, yes, when, when you're on a steeper slope, that's what you want to do. And then the idea is is that the stuff that's downhill ends up being a little bit soggier. But it, it sounds like your stuff isn't all that uh, steep. So since it's a really shallow thing, I, I kind of tend to think about things like, well, rather than just having swales, which tend to have the water soak into the ground, and if it goes straight down, I don't think many of your plants are going to be able to get to that other than like trees with really deep roots. I kind of like the idea of can you kind of get things to be pond-ish. Even if it's a leaky pond, slow that water down. Keep it closer to the surface. Um, I, I, I like the idea of swales in a warmer climate as opposed to a, a colder climate. Because in a colder climate, I'm going to say, I, I'm going to say something different. I'm going to say that I prefer terraces over swales because I want the cold air to move right on by. I want to try and extend my season. But where you're at, uh, holding on to cold air is a good idea, I believe. And so making those, those swales is a good way to go. Jeff Lawton has some different philosophies and some different theories. 
And um, and I guess it depends on which uh, uh, artisan in permaculture you ask, and you'll get different kinds of answers. Um, anyway, I I think I think that pretty much covers it. If you've got any other questions, you know. Uh, oh, and by the way, Jack. <laughs> I love the taunting me in your email where you're saying that you're going to have a different answer than me. Now I have to go listen to your show to find out what you say that's different. Looking forward to it, man. Thanks for the question, Ian. Well, yeah, I did taunt him. I don't know if I taunted him. I basically told him I'm going to have probably a lot of a difference of opinion with you on this just so he knew what he was getting into when he answered the question. Just more of a professional courtesy than a taunt, Paul. Uh, but here's a few things. Number one, I would say that Paul Wheaton understands swales better than 90% of the people in the world that know what a swale is. I would also say that Paul Wheaton doesn't really get swales in this type of a landscape because he's not worked in it, and it's just not where he lives day to day. Where Paul's at in Montana, especially in the spring, if you dig a hole, you can just stand there and watch fill up a water. I saw it happen. It's, it's, there's so much topsoil, and there's so much slope, and there's so much retention, and there's so much of this difference of cool and warm and fast rapid changes, and, and the humidity is different. It's just a different environment. And that's Paul's main frame reference, just as my main frame reference is northeastern United States, northeastern woodlands, and south-central United States, Texas, Washita Mountains, things like that. That's what I know the most about because it's where I grew up and where I live now. Paul knows the most about the northwestern United States because that's where he's, as far as I know, lived all his life. So we're going to have different agendas. So one of the things you hear when Paul starts talking about six feet tall, no, Paul, no, 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 no. Um, that's a hoogleveg, right? And we're not going to build a six-foot-tall swale because the swale goes down, right? You're talking about the swale berm on the other side. What you want to do with a swale, and I agree with Paul on I want big swales for this property, two kilometers of, of swale in this property, if I can fit it in there, maybe more. Uh, and I'm going to follow, and, you know, here's the thing, that has to mostly follow contours. No, Paul, swales must follow the contour 100%. There is no, and this is a lot in thing, right, and, Paul is a disciple of Seth Holzer. I am a disciple of Jeff Lott. We're going to differ on design because those, you know, and, and where does Seth do his design? In a place a lot like Montana. He's done it in other places. It'll work other places. But where did he cut his teeth? In, in the Austrian Alps. It's a lot like Montana, right? So a hugel bed is we're about building up and putting material in there. And I love that technique as well. A swale is about getting the water into the land. You know, Paul's here telling you you don't want it to soak in. Well, you do want it to soak in. And as far as being pond-like and leaky, it takes a lot of energy and a lot of work to build a small pond. It takes a little energy and a little bit of work, especially when you bring in a track hoe, to build a mile of swale. It's fast, it's easy, it's cheap. And it will hold so much more water into the land than any pond ever will. You're talking about all the catchment that hits that swale. And if you ever do get a watershed moment and you overfill that sill and you go down to the next swale, you've done it again and again and again. And you will saturate the landscape. And there are swales built just like this in the deserts of Arizona that were built during the World War II uh, years by the Corps of Engineers, Civilian Conservation Corps, that type of thing. Mostly so that one, when they, they cleared out other fields to grow cotton and irrigated it there for the war effort, the dust would not blow onto the roads. But they built really good swale systems when they did this. 
on contour 100%. Now, 80 years later, there's topsoil in those swales. No one's touched them for 80 years. There's trees and forest, desert forest. We're going to talk about the forest thing at the end today. Well, I said this is myth-busting day for swales. I said swales are for forest systems. They are. Some of you guys think that that means 50-foot oak trees. A desert forest, a scrub forest, a tropical forest, uh, a northeastern woodlands forest, a savanna-based forest. They're all different, but they're all forest systems. Okay, So what I'm going to say where I agree with Paul is I'm going to find as many contour uh, structures as I can in this property. I'm going to put in swales, and I'm going to try to go in a desert climate. I need a bigger swale than I would need in a climate that's you know a lot more hydrated. So I'm going to go with big swales. I'm going to go standard. Two meters wide, one meter deep, as far as how high, it's a function of the downhill grade. We'll talk about that at the end of the show today, too. So that dirt comes out. It goes on the downhill side. It's allowed to naturally distribute. It'll set its height for you. You, you don't have to sweat this at all. You can have your excavator operator come in and just kind of chamfer and shape it a little bit at the end, give it a little bit of art form. Those guys love that. And, and that's going to be the mainstay, main functioning earthworks there. Odds are in the desert you're not going to be able to hold water in a pond. If you can, then your swales can actually fill ponds, right? So down at the end of my swale can be a pond. And when that swale's being filled up, it's filling the pond. And when the pond comes up to a certain level, it actually backfills up the swale and back down the other side. I don't think you're going to pull that off in the desert, but I don't know where your soil's like you might be able to. So that's the mainstream, uh, mainframe earthworks going in. When it comes to getting your food systems established, you may need to go in there with drip irrigation and drip irrigate the whole thing and get all of your stuff established and drip irrigate it. And you may need to irrigate it for two or three or four years to really get those roots down there. No, this is not for growing lettuce and broccoli, right? You are going to need deep-rooted bushes and trees. You're going to need stuff that's adapted to your situation. But you can probably go grow figs and pomegranates uh, probably almonds will do well. I mean, but yeah, you're gonna have to think. It, a swale's not a magic wand in some ways, and in other ways it is. And what I mean by that is, I can put all the swales I want in in North Texas, and I still can only do so much with the world of citrus because a lot of it's gonna die because it's gonna get cold enough there to kill it. I can create some microclimates and stuff and hold some heat in some areas and maybe get away with it there. Um, but I don't have a blanket of snow every year like Seb Holzer does, and I can actually use snow to keep things warm because it's only 32 degrees under there, right? So there's a lot of things that survive in Sep's design because they're covered with snow and it's 15 below zeros above the snow, right? But underneath the snow, it's 32 degrees or maybe even a little warmer if I've got some compost action down there. So these are two different schools of thought. But my answer to this for swales in the desert, two meters wide, one meter deep, Dirt on the downhill side. Paul made a very astute recommendation, though. Do, do, it, do this with a traco. And I'll tell you what he didn't say, but I know he meant, because he knows this. Don't do it with a backhoe. If you have a choice between shovels and a backhoe, use a backhoe all day long. If you're hiring equipment in, bring a traco in. They're so much smoother and easier to work. They're easier. Everything is better with a traco. The other thing with the traco, it's the biggest one you can. If you think you need one that's X, multiply it by two if you can get one. It won't cost much more. It'll work faster. It'll do a better job. There's almost no such thing as too big of a machine. 
At least if somebody's going to bring out to do work like that for you. You get there and they'll tell you, no, we're not sending one of those. So the answer, two meters, one meter deep, earth on a downhill side. If you want to do them smaller, you can. They will not be as effective. They will overflow faster. They'll put less water into the landscape. If you irrigate with the type of architecture I'm talking about, and if you go and look at Greening the Desert, Lawton's little you know viral video on this, you'll see how this works. If you'll irrigate with that, eventually you'll hydrate the land so much that the rain you get will be sufficient to bring the right species of plants straight through without a drought even in the desert. The Hopi Indians grow corn, beans, and squash in those desert systems with no irrigation. In theory, the reality is they build their garden structures in certain ways that act like swales and harvest the water, that create you know, ground penetration into the ground. And the reality is if you soak enough water into the ground, eventually you go down and you hit Mother Earth, man, bedrock. And that water begins to plume out downstream. Paul, one day you and I really need to go on a large-scale swell project together. I've been to your hygge culture projects. Time for you to come down south, learn a little bit about how you do things in the southern warm arid and, and southern warm humid climates and become a convert over to swales. The real thing I think Paul don't want to tell you here, I don't think Paul is a swale convert. I think he's like, yeah, they're good, they're good, but I have other ways. Paul... It's a wardrobe. Every once in a while, instead of taking the hoogle mound out or the terrace mound out, take out the swale one. Anyway, and I know why you don't do it in your climate, and you're absolutely correct. Let's go ahead and take another one. Expert panel question for Steve Harris. Um, hi, Steve. You did the whole generator show, and I found that quite interesting. Um, and seen there's uh, these inverter generators that seem to use less fuel, they're quieter, and put out a better signal for electronics which is a computer programmer and whatnot, that's rather important to me. Um, the thing that I'm kind of puzzled by is it seems like it's better technology, but when I look at generators, I think about the largest I found was a 6500 um, Honda. Um, is there a reason these aren't in larger generators? I mean, that sounds like I would like to have one of these for a, uh, you know, like a 10 to 14,000 kilowatt whole house backup generator. And I'm not seeing those. So I was hoping you could just give me a little heads up as to why we're not seeing them. Is it just that it's such new technology, or do they kind of fall off at a certain point? Okay. Thanks for your answer. Now that one I'm just going to completely bow out and let Stephen give you the answer and come back and take another call, because that is a 100% Stephen Harris question there. Hello, everyone. This is Steve Harris from the Expert Panel calling in to answer your question. First of all, we really need to kill off this stupid myth that is floating around cyberspace about generators being bad for electronics. All generators, all seven types of generators I talk, talked about in my generator show are just perfectly fine for your electronics, for your TV, for your computer, for your Game Boy, for your Wii U, for your PlayStation. They are all fine. This has been a myth that has been started by the stupid solar generator people. And Jack and I have already separately and repeatedly addressed how those are a huge scam. They want you to buy their $2,000 inverter and battery when I'm going to show you how to do it for $200 for absolutely nothing on my TSP battery show. 
All electronics run on DC power. They convert AC to DC internally in a power supply to run the, the electronics. Power supplies really don't care about the quality of the incoming AC power. It gets converted and filtered down to perfectly smooth DC power, no matter how much fluctuation you get in the AC power coming in. Look at your laptop. There's a big, huge power supply attached to it, and it does nothing but take AC power and change it over to low voltage DC. It's got a transformer. It's got filter capacitors in it. It's got everything and it's got electronics in there called voltage regulators to regulate the voltage exactly to what the laptop is going to need. It is always going to produce the exact voltage the laptop needs no matter what the internal AC power is going to be doing. Look at every piece of electronics you have. They almost all have wall warts or power supplies that do the same thing. They change AC to DC voltage and then it's precisely regulated to the, to DC to a very exact 5 volts, a very exact 12 volts or a very exact outer voltage for whatever the charger, the, the game or the toy or the tool you have needs. It does this no matter how much the AC voltage fluctuates up and down and how much the frequency fluctuates back and forth. The DC power supply will convert it to all of it to DC. Electronics we buy in the USA are all made in China or Japan, and they sell the same electronics around the world. And all of these electronics run in crap countries around the world with crap power from a crap grid that's a lot worse than nice, smooth, easy AC power you're going to be making from your generator here in the United States. So you do not need an inverter generator just because of your electronics. Now, inverter generators are more quiet. They run at a lower RPM because they can do what we call follow the load. They can speed up and they can slow down depending upon what your load is. And they don't have to always spin at 3600 RPM to make 60 hertz AC like a regular generator does. The electronics in the inverter generator makes the 60 hertz just perfect. The inverter spins to make DC power based upon the load, and that DC is then instantly converted to the AC that you need. That's why when you have a low load on the generator, it's running at a low RPM, and it's exceptionally quiet. So the thing that comes to mind is 6,500 watts is not big enough for you. That's more than enough to run most homes in the United States. Yes, there are reasons why they are not bigger than 6,500 watts, it contains an awful lot of electronics in it to convert the DC voltage off of the generator to a perfect AC for you to use within your house. The Honda EU6500i watt inverter generator is already $4,000. Okay, that's 6,500 watts. You can buy a 240-volt AC and 120-volt AC generator that is 10 kilowatts for a thousand bucks and this is five, six times the price. Do you really want to spend seven thousand to ten thousand dollars for a fourteen kilowatt or eighteen kilowatt inverter generator and they don't exist? Uh, especially when your normal whole house generator will work just one hundred percent fine for you at half the price and will work on all of your electronics. If there is something that you have that is so sensitive, then you better have a very nice UPS on it. And that stands for Uninterruptible Power Supply, not UPS, the shipping companies. And that will protect it from everything that could happen to it, both on U.S. power and from generator power. Heck, 
I've had my UPS save my computer from turning off during a power failure six times in the last seven days. For some reason, my wife put the Christmas lights on the same outdoor circuit that my home office is on. And when my little electric heater kicks on to keep it nice and warm down here, it blows the breaker in the fuse box. Usually, it's right in the middle of some big, long email I'm writing, and the UPS keeps everything up for me so I can go down to the breaker box and throw the breaker and turn the power back on. So it's got very good USA applications for it. Costco and Sam's have very good UPS is a good price. They're usually around $100 for a good size one. I suggest you go, anyone listening, go buy one. Thanks for the questions. Keep them coming in. I love them all from you guys. If you wonder why this question was being asked, I did two entire shows on selecting the fueling generator for your home. See generator show number one and generator show number two at www.solar1234.com. You can just tap on it from your smartphone and listen to it as you work or drive. I did mention I'm going to show you how to make your own home and mobile battery inverter setup. It looks like that show will be on TSP in the second week of December of year 2012. If you want a sneak peek as to what's going to be on the battery show, take a look at www.battery1234.com. <laughs> Got you guys there. It's a new one just for you. B-A-T-T-E-R-Y 1234.com. And as always, my past shows are all listed at solar1234.com for you to listen to. Thanks for the questions. Keep them coming in. I love them, and I will be seeing you guys shortly on the new battery show. Thank you. Good stuff from always is Stephen from Stephen Harris, and we've got that battery backup show coming uh, Wednesday and Thursday of the coming week. You guys are going to love that. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Joe from Lindenhurst, New York. I was just following up for your uh, feedback for uh, you know why people didn't evacuate or why they weren't ready. Um, I myself am a prepper, and I've been uh, storing. I had uh, 30 days of food. I had uh, plenty of water and um, a good supply of things that I might need stove-wise and to cook after my home was uh, uh, pretty much half devastated uh, from the flood we had. Uh, but, uh, you know, I want to let you know that when you, if you've never experienced a situation where you've had devastation, it's hard to basically say, I'm leaving. I left my wife, dropped my family off at my in-law's house further inland. I went back to my house and tried to wait it out to see how bad the flood would get. And when I noticed it was coming up to my garage door, uh, I basically had to say, i got to get out of here. You know, it, it's dangerous. When the sirens go off and the National Guard's coming and you're told you have to evacuate, it's pretty darn hard, even with that, fear to just say, I'm giving up and my house is going down. So just, you know, if you've never been in this situation, it's really hard to explain what it's like to just say goodbye to your house. Anyway, we're making it. We're getting through. We've formed a little community where we've been helping each other out. We did a Boy Scout uh, food drive, and uh, we did a breakfast for the local community on some camper grills that I did. And I'm just trying to give back because I've received so much um, and just a heads up, the Red Cross has been helpful, and the Red Cross has been doing a great job with supplies. So, Jack, this is Joe from Lindenhurst. Keep up the great work. Really appreciate the show. We've been prepping, and we'll prep even more now. Thanks. 
Well, first, thanks for calling in and giving a human face to the prepper in the middle of ground zero in a disaster and how you can do everything right and sometimes you still lose. And I think that we all need to understand that. We all need to accept that. And that's why we all need to keep a healthy bit of humility in ourselves and an understanding and sympathy and empathy for our fellow man when they end up in these situations and they're totally unprepared. Even though we think they should be, there is a, a, a entire shift of culture that's going to have to happen before the average American is prepared. It's, it's going to have to become a culture of preparedness, and we are a million miles from that right now, and most of the people in the middle of that have no idea about it. They don't even get it, but awareness is coming. So in the meantime, it's up to us to be examples, and I'm sorry, sir, that you ended up you know, kind of losing the fight, at least in some ways. And I, I, I applaud you for getting your wife and your kids out and trying to fight that battle alone. And I applaud you for realizing there's a point where you got to go. And it goes unsaid sometimes. But there's a reason that I believe that every prepper should have, at minimum, a bug-out plan and, ideally, a bug-out location. It forces the mind to go through the exercise before you have to do it. It makes you more mentally prepared to execute the concept of I'm going to abandon ship and go elsewhere when the time comes. It sounds like when you when it really came push to shove, you made the choice and you went and you got out and then you came back to try to salvage what you had and it worked out for you. I'm not picking on you, but I want a lesson for everybody else. It is very possible that this could have gone a different way. That at the point that the man made the decision, one or two variables could have hit. Even with the storm being the same, something that was holding could have failed somewhere else. Or a certain tree that didn't fall could have fallen. Or a tree that fell you know, exactly in one spot could have fell one foot different and changed everything. And this gentleman may have been able, un, unable to get out in that instance. And it's extremely important that we all keep that in our hearts because I believe this man. I believe that if I had something, let me think about this. I'm about to relocate to North Texas. I'm about to have the one of the best people in the world at Earthworks Design come in and design my Earthworks with lots of swales, Paul. And <laughs> now I am talking. But anyway, and I'm going to put years of work and dedication into that. If things really go wrong the wrong way, I may have to abandon that ship. It ain't going to be easy. Everybody that has kids that's living in a home probably had things their kid did there for the first time. I know that every time we drove away from a home for the last time, my wife had tears in her eyes. You're going to have all that and more when a forest fire is coming or a flood is coming or a tsunami is coming or anything that we can see in advance is coming, roving hordes, if you want to call them that, riots. Will there ever be anything left? Will there be anything to come back to? I don't know. Oh, my God. I want to stay and defend this. If you don't have a natural predisposition to defend where you live, find a new place to live because you're not where you belong. Wherever you live should be a place that you have some pride in, some joy in, something that does it. Why the hell are you there? As much liberty has been lost, it's a much freer planet than it was a couple hundred years ago under monarchy. If you want to go somewhere, you don't have to ask any permission, you can go. 
Why are you living in a place you don't want to live? I need my job, whatever. Find a place that works for you. You should feel pain when you leave. But you need to be prepared to endure the pain and make the decision and do it. And do it before it becomes obvious that there's no other choice. If you wait till the final moment, it might work out like it did here. And it could mean that you're trapped behind enemy lines, so to speak. Or it could mean that you're dead. And it's great that people send away their daughter, their son, their wife. And then you're going to stand and hold the fort. It seems like the manly thing to do. And I'm not putting you down, and I'm not second-guessing you, because I didn't have to make this decision. You did. But when I look at that from a distance and I remove the emotion, my place is with them. My place is with my wife. My place is with my son. And if it's time for them to go, in most instances, it's time for me to go as well, as hard as it may be. And that's why I think it's so important to have, to go through, over and over and over and over again, in your mind, even drill it. We have to leave. Where would we go? How would we get there? How many avenues of escape do we have to have? Minimum of three. How many routes to each location? Minimum of three. That's nine ways the hell out of here. How would we do it? Where would we go? How would we communicate with each other? It's not just being able to execute it logistically. You're now mentally prepared when it comes down to it. It's a point, you know, like Greg, uh, um, that when it comes down to it, it's like Glenn Tate was talking about if you're in a confrontation with, with weapons. You want the brain almost to switch off and go into that reptile brain mode and respond and do what you've trained to do a hundred times over and over and over again. Not just muscle memory, but mental memory. Mental preparation. There's the threat. Identify it. Move. Get off the X. Seek cover. Return fire. Eliminate the threat. Evaluate for other threats. Right? I mean, that kind of thinking that I just gave you, if you ask the average person, what do you do when you're shot at? They don't answer it that way. They have no idea. They either say hit the floor or shoot back. That, that's not the answer. That's, that's how you get dead. You have to respond. There's a, there's a, a procedural response that gets adapted and changes and shifts, but the core of it's the same. The people that survive those deadly encounters that stop them have trained to the point where when that happens, they execute. The training is not just draw, aim, fire, return, okay? The training is also the fact that you thought about it over and over and over again. When you were driving to the range, thinking about what you were going to train that day, bugging out is the same thing. You know, you're driving, you're driving along an area. And you go, hey, this is one of my primary routes of getting the hell out of here. Something goes wrong. Start looking around, develop your situational awareness, think about it. And you know what? When it comes down to it, it's going to be much easier to leave. And this gentleman's right. It's going to still be hard. And the next time you look at somebody stuck in a disaster and say, why didn't they leave? Understand there's that component going on too. It's like saying, why did that guy just stand there and get shot? Even though he had a gun. If it happens to soldiers on a first encounter, and it does, it can happen to you. That's something we all need to remember. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Redfoot out in North Carolina. Uh, I am calling, hoping that you can possibly offer some words of inspiration. Uh, as you know from my last call, I'm getting ready to start raising rabbits 
and I started training with a friend in the butchering process and the killing process. And yesterday I started doing multiple rabbits in a sitting, and it was just a real intense experience for someone who was a vegetarian for 15 years. And you know, I know I know why I'm doing it. I know that it's such a better thing to do than to eat factory farm meat, which I will not do. And you know, I, but I'm just surrounded by people who are constantly telling me, "Why don't you just you know have someone else do it for you, so you don't have to go through it?" And I know why I'm doing it again, but ah, it'd be nice to just hear some words of inspiration because doing the three in a row, man, it was it was real emotional, real hard. So yeah, if you could offer some words of inspiration, I would be very appreciative. Thanks, Jack. Have a great day. Well, um, the first thing I want to tell you is thank you for having the courage to come on the air and say this is hard for me. Because there's a lot of people out there, especially the big, rugged, I'm a tough survivalist, I can live on tree bark types, that wouldn't do it. They, they claim to be so brave, but if they had this problem, they would never admit it publicly. That's courage, sir. Thank you for it. Demonstration of courage is how you inspire courage in others. And courage is not always defined by somebody winning a silver star on a battlefield. It's important we understand that and acknowledge that. Um, the next part of this is, I want to encourage you, and I want you to be able to do this more effectively and with less of it weighing on your soul, but I never want you to feel nothing. I always want you to feel something when you do this. And it's because, you know, I talked about how I'm kind of a disciple of the work done by Jeff Lawton. I'm also a disciple of the work done by Seb Holzer, to be fair to Paul, because I know that's his, his real big mentor. And I'm also a huge follower of uh, Joel Salatin. And the thing that won me over to Joel Salatin wasn't his success. Um, if you do what's right and you follow the rules, whether it's in business or agriculture or what have you, you will find success. And if you emulate nature in agriculture, you'll get more success long-term than if you do it by chemicals. Success, I expect, in someone as smart as Joel Salton. What won me over is I read an article about killing chickens by Joel. And this is what he said. Don't kill every day. Don't kill every day. You'll become desensitized to it, and you won't feel anything. When you take the life of an animal, any animal, you should feel something. That means you're human. And that was it for me. That was like, this man is a man that goes on my list of people I want to be like. That made him, for lack of a better word, one of my heroes, one of my mentors. And I completely agree with that. But if it's really hard, first let me say, if you did decide that you're only going to do so much of your own slaughter and butcher and you are going to turn some of it over to others, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, especially if you do it in a larger scale. Three, I would do three myself. If I got to a point where uh, once every couple months I was butchering 50 chickens or 50 rabbits, I probably would turn it over, not just for the emotional difference, but just logistically. I only have so much time. It takes a while to do this. There's people that do it really well, really fast, that are completely set up and specialized to do it in large volume, and they'll do a better job. So that's about out-tasking. There's certain things in my life I could do, but I'll get somebody else to do, like laying tile in my kitchen. I could do it. They'll do a better job. And I'll be free to run my business. So there's a point where I'm going to make that decision. I would not fault you if you did it even on a smaller scale. Don't think that you're not good enough if you, if you choose to outsource some of this type of work. 
But let me tell you how you have to look at this. There's two parts to this. There is taking the life and there's preparing the carcass. Once, and this is how I view spirituality as a whole. Once the life force is gone, I don't have a rabbit anymore. I have a rabbit's carcass. That animal's spirit, its life force has departed its body. And I have my own beliefs about what happens to consciousness after death. And I don't preach to anybody, so I won't go into that. But what I will tell you I believe is this. That life force, that essence that still exists as a consciousness somewhere, couldn't give a rip about the old shell it used to be in. Whether it's a human or a rabbit, I think it's the same way. Couldn't care less about what happens to its shell. Because it's just a shell. And now it's food. So if you went to the, the grocery store and bought a great big huge piece cut of meat, right? Like let's say a big loin. And you're going to make your own loin chops out of it. And you brought it home and it's cold and it's wet and it's bloody and it's red. And you start cutting it. You don't sit there and feel emotionally attached to the animal. Now, you didn't know that animal. It's true. But you don't feel emotionally attached to that animal. It's just cutting meat. It's just like cutting the steak on your plate when you eat it. You're, it's Now it's a steak. So to me, the key when I've had to slaughter is always if I have to slaughter one, well, it's one and it's done. If I have to slaughter three of something, I'm going to do all the killing first. And then I'm going to do the processing And I'm probably going to do the processing in stages. So if I'm killing three rabbits, I'm going to kill them. Then I'm going to skin them. Right? Then I'm going to remove the feet and the head and gut and clean. And then they're either going to go and be put away that way, cooked whole, put away whole, or sectioned out after that. And I'm going to separate each component of the process And I'm going to get the part that I look forward the least to over first. I have much less of a problem pulling the steaming guts out of an animal than taking its life. And I'm a hunter. And I've always felt a little something for that swirl that's, you know, making that leap through the tree when I pull off that shot that to me is tougher than a wing shot when it's really, you know, timbering through. Um, a little bit. And certainly an animal as majestic as a deer when I've put that arrow through their lungs. I always feel a little bit. When I walk up to that animal, I always kind of touch it and without words sort of thank it for being what it is. Kind of a Native American type thing more than anything else, I guess. And that's always been natural. It was never like a ritual. Like now that I'm older, I've actually thought about, you know, learning some of these things and doing them. And I've thought, you know, but I have my own thing. And that, but it's never been a problem. The problem with taking the life of livestock is in some essences you're, you're killing your friends. And beyond that, you're killing something that trusts you. The deer doesn't trust me. The deer doesn't trust me. It knows I'm a predator. I've heard people say, it's not really hunting unless both sides know what's going on. Well, let me tell you something, buddy. Those uh, green peace types or whatever that are worried about the deer. Deer know when they're being hunted, especially when you're archery hunting. It's much more close. It's much more intimate. They know. You'll see deer everywhere. The first day of deer season. And they change like that. They know when they're being hunted. So do squirrels. Don't let the squirrel in the park fool you. Okay? It, it eats peanuts out of your hand. You go up into the woods and you go to a place where you're allowed to hunt. And a squirrel is one of the most elusive animals you will ever hunt. 
In some ways, they have a lot more advantages to getting away from hunters than deer do. And yes, why are more of them killed? Well, there's more of them out there. And, you know, the one thing they blow is they silhouette themselves against the sky when their leaves are off. But in each of those instances, whether it's a squirrel or a duck or a grouse or a deer, and I've taken that animal's life, I feel like as a hunter I earned it. Where when I'm feeding something that'll eat out of my hand to take its life is a totally different experience. And it's not easy. And there's certain animals that I don't think I will ever keep. And if I do, I will have to have someone else take care of the slaughter. As funny as it sounds, pigs are one of them. I mean, feral hogs are ugly, mean, nasty things. I'll shoot a hundred of them in a day. It wouldn't bother me. Couldn't eat a hundred. Hey, we'll package the meat up, give it to hunters for the hungry and let them distribute it. But a little piglet, they're like a little dog. They act like a dog. I, people that keep them and, and, and then do their own slaughter, I respect the hell out of you, but part of me is hard for me to understand. So understand that other people deal with this at other levels. Now, a rabbit, I can do cervical dislocation of a rabbit pretty quick without a whole lot of, oh, I can't believe I did that. But it's also about, you know, I think it would be harder with one of your breeders that you've had for three or four seasons if you decide, well, it's time to replace that stock than it is with that bunny that grew up over a few months and it's fryer size now and ready to go. I think there's a certain amount of the relationship that's there with the animals. And, you know, it's easier for me to do a chicken than a rabbit. A rabbit has more personality in some ways. So I don't know how much encouragement I can give you other than to say that it's a normal experience. You should always feel something. You will get less impacted, but if you ever find yourself completely zoned out with no emotion, one of the great things about rabbits and chickens and small livestock is you don't have to do all of them at one time. You can leave them, right? And you could, you, So take a break. Always feel something. That's the most encouraging thing I can say to you is that you should always feel something when you take a life. It's a serious thing. It's also necessary to be able to nourish yourself the way that human beings evolve to be nourished. We evolve to eat meat. Some of you don't like that because you're vegans or whatever. I'm sorry. Run your tongue over your teeth and feel your canines. Uh, look at the structure of the human mouth, the teeth that we have. We're an omnivore. We're designed to cut flesh, chew it up, and eat it. We're also designed to eat plants and fruits and things like that. To fully nourish the human body, meat is a component in it if, if it's to be done naturally. You can structure a vegan diet to be fairly healthy, and, and I know you can. But that's who we are. That's what we are as a species. And if you want to live that way, then it's a very responsible thing to take over the care and uh, preparation of at least some of the meat that you're going to eat. Because every time you put a piece in your mouth, of meat in your mouth, that means something gave up its life. That's the best I can do. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. I had a question. Um, listening to the resiliency of children and was wondering um, about self-defense. I would like to get some basic self-defense training, not only for myself, but for my kids, but paying for classes isn't really an option. Is there any good uh, basic self-defense courses? I've seen some videos. I think there was one even advertised on your site at one time that you could recommend just basic things that uh, a child and even an adult would be able to master. Uh, I love the show. Thanks. Bye. 
on like the DVD based training and stuff like that. Um, we did a whole series with Valerie Asanoff. We did weapons disarmament. We did striking, and the system of striking is unreal. Uh, you can hit harder than you would ever believe. How to move, how to absorb impacts. It, it's great stuff. And it really can help people. But it wasn't really designed, and nor can it be designed, to hand to a person and say, go study this and learn how to do this that's had no experience at all with at least a little bit of sparring and some formal training and understanding how to punch, understanding how to block, and understanding confrontation. It's designed to take a person and add a skill set. And that's the best any DVD or book or any kind of online course is going to do for you. There, there's no, it, it, it's, it's one of those things that requires human contact to really do right. And it's not true of our DVDs, but I will tell you that the majority of the DVDs, ebooks, and things on self defense that are out there are really kind of angled toward the whole concept of just messing the other guy up at whatever cost necessary. Um, very brutal, very violent, and they're marketed to the hothead asshole that wants a fight. And that's not what you want for your kids. And the Valerie Asanoff stuff, I'll put a link to it today, very good, very solid, highly recommended, but it won't replace some level of person-to-person -person training. It's about learning and understanding new things. Um, I think you might be surprised at how affordable some classes, at least for your kids, can be. And I'll tell you, with children, especially with martial arts or even something like, which is technically a martial art, but we don't think of it like boxing or, or what have you, um, the training and the understanding and the philosophy of dealing with a professional who teaches self-defense truly for self-defense only is as important as the technique. It's as important as the technique. I studied martial arts quite a bit as a kid. I thought I was really good till I met Val and realized that there was a much easier, much faster route toward being effective. But the training helped me be a better man. And if you can find any way to put that type of training into any young person, I think it's highly valuable. And I know it can be expensive, but there's generally ways that it can be somewhat more affordable. And I would, you know, if you're concerned with that, that's one thing that I would look at. Number two with self-defense for your children is to understand that one of the things that they need to learn most with self-defense is avoidance of conflict. That it is no, it is not a survivalist mindset to engage in a conflict if it can be avoided. This is not just a Zen Buddha thing about Kung Fu or whatever, and you know, the best way to block a punch is not to be there when it lands, and you know, just the, the ethic and all. This is a tactical situation to understand. One of the things that we did when we were dealing with some really tough guys that we did some of the vow work with was we put two of them into a situation and said, okay, this is, you're the aggressor, you're the dick, you're the one that's being a jerk in, in a bar or something, you, and you told the other guy, you're sitting here with your girlfriend. Right, this guy, and he told the other guy how to act, and didn't tell him how the other guy would act. And I said, other than like actually grabbing each other and throwing each other on the floor, or actually coming to blows, I want you to act the way you would in this situation, mainly to the guy being aggressed upon. And 
so this is all going on. And they're doing the whole thing that young guys do and pushing each other and shoving each other. And while it's going on, I walked by the guy that was being aggressed upon. And he, he just feels touch him, something touches his back. And I just walk right past him. And then finally, you know, say, hey, oh, okay, got, we're done. Great, great job and all. And I said, did you feel anything touch your back? He said, sort of, not really. And I pulled out a training knife, a rubber training knife, about nine inches long. And said, that just went through your kidneys and across your back. And everybody stopped, mouth agape, and just went, wow. That's not what you expect. The schoolyard fight with the bully that your son can handle might turn into 15 guys kicking him in the head. Avoidance is key. Avoidance is a survival mindset. It is the last option to engage. And many times, by attempting avoidance, if you do have to engage, you've disarmed the assailant to a large degree. And what I mean by that is if you provoke me, and you've got this bravado attitude, and I'm, I'm trying to avoid this, I'm saying, hey, man, no problem, whatever. You get more and more aggressive if you've heard of the wrong mindset. And you start telling yourself, this guy's weak. This guy, I'm going to, and you start opening yourself up in a lot of ways that make you extremely vulnerable, where if I look aggressive in return right away, you're thinking, I got to defend, maybe I've been off, I don't know, right? I don't know what I got here. Maybe this guy's uh, better than I thought he was. Maybe he's bigger. Maybe he's got buddies. Maybe he's got a gun. Maybe he's got a knife. I don't know what I'm dealing with. But the guy that's trying to avoid it, if you got any level head, you let him. Right? If you don't, if you don't have a level head, and you attack him, you do so with a false sense of security that, hey, this guy's afraid of me. When that guy's not afraid of you, So I'd say that component has to come in as well. I'd really look, though, before trying to say, you know, watch this DVD or whatever, at trying to get some types of formalized instruction, and there's generally affordable ways to do that. Check around before you write off the option. And it doesn't have to be for 10 years, right? It could be for a few months just to get things going. And if you get a child that really enjoys it, there's always ways they can earn a little bit of money to help pay for it if they really want to be doing it. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Ashley in southeast Alaska. My husband turned me on to your show about a year ago. I've sure learned a lot, so thanks for all your help, especially in preparedness. Um, my question is, my husband and I are having a baby in about a month or so, and we're weeding through all the information on vaccines. And I was wondering if you have an opinion. It seems like there's a lot of things for the vaccines and then a lot of things against the vaccines. Just curious. Thank you. Bye. Well, th this is one of those things where I'm into a no-win situation because I'm probably going to make both sides mad at me. It could, because here's what I'm going to say. I have no doubt that in certain situations with certain illnesses, vaccines have saved millions of lives. Okay, So now half the people are angry with me. And then I'm going to tell you the other side. I have no doubt in many situations that some vaccines are completely unnecessary that all of them compromise the immune system, and they've probably damaged or taken millions of lives over the years. And they've made people sick who don't even know why they're sick. I think that if you look at the actual uh, you know, 
advertised side effects of a lot of the vaccines. It makes you really question whether you should be taking them, especially when you should be giving them to your children. I think that we over-vaccinate in this society at a ridiculous level, and the number of vaccinations given to children, and I don't just mean the number of illnesses, but the frequency for a single illness at which vaccines are given today is given at a much higher level than it was when I was a kid getting vaccines. The, 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 the frequency is ridiculous. There is no need for the frequency. That I'm convinced of, about. But I have a hard time telling you what you should do with your body or your kid's body. And I say you have to read and make an informed decision for yourself. The person who I trust the most on the, the counter argument of these things are bad for us is Dr. McCullough. And I do trust him, and I do think he is a very smart, uh, very science-based physician. I recently had an exchange with a medical doctor in the audience who said I like him, and I, I mentioned him. I mentioned Deepak Chopra, and I mentioned Andrew Weil, and he said, I like all three of them, but I do think that Mercola, out of the group, is the one that's out kind of out there once in a while. And I said, you know, one thing you better understand about Mercola before you say he's out there is a lot of the stuff that he was said to be out there about 10 years ago today is accepted by mainstream medicine. So <laughs> when a guy has a track record like that, you know, maybe you listen a little bit. But my biggest thing I can tell you about why I'm concerned about vaccinations is highly unscientific to most people, but to me it means more. My wife, who is my wife now of 12 years, going to be 13, and has been in my life full-on wholesale every day for 16 years, who I love dearly and who I know better than anybody else. On, I believe there's nobody in the world that knows my wife or loves my wife more than me. And I can tell you up until a few years ago, I would tell her all of these things about mainstream medicine, and it was like trying to pour water on concrete, 100% runoff, no penetration whatsoever. Unwilling to look at it because she's a nurse, and she's a nurse for over 20 years. Since leaving, she's done a lot of research into these things, and she keeps telling me, like, did you know this? Did you? I'm like, yeah, I've been telling you that for years. And she's like, yeah, I just can't believe it. And, 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 and she's you know, science-based with this stuff. She's not going to believe it because somebody put it on a blog. And recently she was asked, well, if you guys move back to Texas, would you consider coming back to work and taking a job again as a nurse? Here's what she said. I don't think I could just give all those baby shots again without telling the parents, you need to know before you make this decision. And if I do that, no one's going to want to hire me. That tells you a lot about this one-size-fits-all, everybody's vaccinated 57 damn times for the same thing. And when you look at disease rates from the past, most diseases, by the time vaccinations were introduced, were in a sharp decline. Some had already declined to the current levels that they're still at. But I don't believe they're 100% ineffective. I don't buy that. I don't believe that every vaccination is going to kill a person or have serious side effects. I don't believe that either. And I think you have to make a decision about the actual risk of a disease versus the actual risk of the vaccination. And this crap about, well, if you don't vaccinate your kids, then what about my kids? Then you go get your kids vaccinated. If your kids are vaccinated, you shouldn't have to worry. If they're as effective as you're telling me they are, then my kid having the disease shouldn't be a problem for yours. Seriously. I will tell you what I think is grossly overused, 
absolutely unnecessary for healthy individuals is getting a flu shot every year. I think that is a terrible decision. I won't do it. I haven't done it since getting out of the military where you're getting vaccinated whether you like it or not. At least that's how I figured it was. And didn't know any better, by the way, back then. I've had a, I've had a flu shot one year. So one year I got the flu. I'm not saying there's a connection. I'm just saying, you know what? The one time I did it, it didn't work. I've been sick. I've had, and mostly what I've had is throat issues, guys. You know, I've said I can't do the show because I'm not feeling well. What that means is I've stuffed up from allergies or whatever, and I know that if I do the show, that I'm going to hurt my voice worse and I'm going to be out for longer. Just like an athlete that pulled a, a muscle that can play, but it's not going to play at their, the top of their game. And it would be better to let the backup in. Plus, if they do it, they're going to be out for more games than just one. That's when you hear me say I have to take some time off due to illness. That's what I'm talking about. I'm a healthy guy. I'm almost never like you know puking, sick, you know whatever. It's I get some allergies once in a while. That's it. And for all I know, my allergies are aggravated by the immunizations that I've had in my past. I don't have a cut and dry opinion on this. I don't think it's as easy. And this is a place where I go. There are people that know more than me. I know that unless I sincerely believe I'm at risk for a specific illness, I do not wish to be vaccinated for it. That's all I can say. And like I said, I probably, because there's the purest, all of them are evil, blah, blah, blah. They've never saved a life one. And you're wrong. And I'm sure you're angry at me. And then there's the mainstream dumbass sheep. If they say to take it, we should take it. And, I don't think it's that, and there's people that are the Alex Jones. It's all designed to kill us. No, right? Let me tell you something about corporations, whether it be medicine or food. They don't do these things to kill you. They do these things to make money, and as long as they don't get sued or get sued for a significant amount less than the money that they've made, they don't care that it kills you. And I believe that there's pharmaceutical companies trying to come up with a vaccine for everything under the sun, including things that have never killed a healthy human being ever, just because if I can get that vaccine out there and I can get it as a routine medication, I get a guaranteed profit center. If you don't think that's true, you don't understand business, especially at that level, that trillion, billion, you know, multi-billion dollar business layer. So that's my thoughts and that's my, my personal choices. Unless I'm at severe risk of an illness, And unless I consider that illness a severe risk to have, I don't need to be vaccinated for it. But that's personal. You have to make your own decisions. I do invite anyone on either side of the debate to really look at and read the work of Dr. McCullough. All the stuff's on his website. Check him out. Subscribe to his newsletter. And you may find that you'll learn something. Let's take another call. Hi, Jeff. Uh, this is Jeff from the suburbs of Portland, Oregon. Uh, fairly recent listener to your uh, podcast and enjoy them very much. Uh, my question is, uh, what do you think are the most <clears throat> marketable skills for uh, a rural area and for, uh, you know, after an economic collapse? Uh, my situation is um, uh, I have a good career in high-tech industry, and, uh, you know, that's great as long as the economy's uh, cranking along. But if uh, things go south or if we were to move into a more rural area, uh, my type of work would not be available. And so I'm wondering what, where to focus my uh, energies into building new skill that would be marketable, say, to farmers or to a small town. Uh, you know, I immediately think of things like uh, 
engine repair, welding, things like that. But I don't know if I'm not familiar with those areas to know if uh, that's already saturated by people that already live there. Um, so as a newcomer to uh, a, a small community, what do you think would be a, a good skill to focus on building or what type of business uh, do you think would be uh, viable for a newcomer uh, in a rural area to pursue? Thank you very much. Bye. I, I think the first thing that we need to define here is if you have the type of collapse that you may be alluding to here, that the urban becomes rural, right? Um, if, if your computer skills are not valuable living in Sheboyganville, Illinois, they're not valuable in Chicago, Illinois, okay? I, I, that's just, so let's, let's understand that first of all. The concept that if we have an economic recession, that all of a sudden if you're a computer programmer working remotely in, in, in a rural area, you won't be able to keep doing it. unless As long as the phone lines are there, Internet access is there, and somebody's doing something somewhere, you have an equal chance of getting a job there as you do anywhere else. In fact, the more of the things that go wrong, the more companies are going to look to push that stuff out and reduce the cost of actually housing a person at a desk. So let's mitigate that fear with everything except the total catastrophic failure uh, straight away. Now I'm going to speak your language and look at this from a computer standpoint. Um, there's two schools of thought for developers, programmers, and things like that. And one is to become highly specialized, to know a certain language, a certain database schematic, and a certain group of systems very well to where you become one of the most in-demand people in that sector. When somebody wants something like that, they want you. If you're competing with other people, you've got so much expertise, and that's great until all of a sudden that system or language or whatever becomes kind of an archaic thing and gets replaced by a new development. And that happens, and it's happened to a lot of people. There's a lot of people that were top-notch guys in the 80s. Uh, they were highly sought after. They specialized. In the 90s, as their systems began to go away, they actually became more in demand because they were some of the few people left that really knew what they were doing in it. And there's people that have even held on into the 2000s that are working on some stuff that goes back that far, and they can make a good bit of coin, but there's only so many places that they can do it, and there's less and less every year. Whereas another way that developers uh, you know, choose to advance their careers, they become broad. I can do cold fusion, I can do Ruby on Rails, I can do PHP, I can do C plus, I can do basic, I can do, you know, SQL, I can do MySQL, I can do the, you know, and, and, and just get as, you know, Ruby on Rails and to, to do as many things as in, you know, Ajax and to keep adding more and more and more and more. So that no matter what's going on, they can contribute to a project Even if they're not a great Ajax developer, they have enough of an understanding where if there's an Ajax component to a project, they can oversee the outsourcing of the Ajax component and do everything else or what, you know, however. And you see that in telecommunications as well. Some people specialize in voice and well, I don't know if you've paid attention, but that, that industry's moved from voice to data. Even most of the stuff we think of as voices and uses is running on data packets. So the voice specialist, if they didn't expand into the data market with their skills, have a problem. So how does that relate to the rural market? The best thing you can do is to be a jack of many trades and maybe a master of one or two. And if you look at it from the standpoint of, like, if I'm a rancher, I want to hire you as a ranch hand. And, and, you know, I need you to do things like, you know, take care of my cattle, make sure they're fed, move them in and out, uh, and, and check for fences and men fences. And those are the primary things that I need you to do. 
Um, you know, if you know horses, you can do that. And if you don't really do it well, if you're not the only hand I have, you'll come up to speed really quick on that. And I can hire tons of people to do that. And in a rural area, there's lots of people already know how to do that. But if you can also do small engine repair, if you can also do welding, if you have this whole list of skills, because a lot of times these people have all the stuff, but maybe you know the guy that owns it's the only one that knows how to use it, and he's busy doing other things, and he can't fix everything, and he's trying to bring some of his hands. The guy that can always find a solution, well, he's got a job. And you know, if you're that guy and you're on some kind of a crew or something, and they have to start, you know paring down the crew, you know, that 10-year concept we think of in, like, education where, oh, this guy will never get fired because he's been a professor for 20 years. He'll die here. That doesn't happen in the real world. That's why I call school, especially college, a fantasy freaking land because the real world don't work like that. When I got to let one person out of four guys go and I got one guy that's only started three weeks ago but he can do everything and no one else there can do everything, I'm keeping him because it's in my best interest to do so. Because I can do, in fact, when I have to pare people down, I want the guy that can do the most kept because I can absorb other people's responsibilities into him. So it's diversity of skills. Now, what skills, I think that, you know, if I give you a list and you go do it, it's probably a waste of time. I think you need to look at your aptitude, your talents, your areas of interest and things like that. But I think the biggest thing to focus on is being able to take care of yourself, in that rural environment. How can you be as sufficient as possible for yourself? And that'll give you the skills you need to be valued by the community and supported by the community and interacted with and worked with by the community. But the one thing I want to point out, you know, there's people who say, well, become a blacksmith. And if you want to do that, that's fine. I'm going to put it. I think it's a great skill to have. But this belief, once again, I got to say this here because I know this is kind of where this angles toward. This belief that all of a sudden it's going to be Laura Ingalls Wilder, Little House on the Prairie again, because of peak oil or some shit, and all technology is going to go away, and everybody's going to be living hand to mouth, dirt poor, and living like they did during, you know, uh, you know, the 1600s is crazy. It's insane. As much problem as we have with technology, and as many places as technology can fail and will fail, we also have the knowledge of what's possible. The biggest thing that separates us from the way people lived in the 1600s to now isn't the stuff. It's the knowledge of what's even possible. The knowledge exists. It's not going away. The genie's not going back in the bottle. Components will fail. Systems will fail. Heartache will reign supreme. But technology's not going away. It's not. And, you know, they say, you know, solar and wind and all can't provide enough energy to run America. Well, it can't do it the way we're doing it today. But we can provide plenty of energy to run computers, run communication systems, run trains. Okay, The logistical components of getting by will be there longer than we'll live. The economy will fail. Yes, it will. I talk about it all the time. And there will be a new economy. The government will become oppressive. Yes, it will. I talk about it all the time. And either we'll either fight back or we won't. And I, no one can predict what's going to happen. But there will be a civilization, and their technology will be a component of it. And if that, the only way technology will not be a component of our civilization is there will be no more civilization, period. You want that? That is going to be a comet hits the earth, and it's an extinction-level event. Or maybe there's these tiny little pockets of people that survive on cockroaches and algae. Right? Anything short of that... 
don't prepare by learning these hard skills so that one day you'll be a valued member uh, cobbling shoes in a little community that doesn't see any outsiders ever because no one can go anywhere anymore and there, nobody's seen a computer and it's like Revolution the miniseries. Because it ain't going to happen. That's Hollywood. That's not real life. Learn the hard skills because they're valuable. So choose the things that you're, you know, does, is there a lot of welders or whatever? I, I don't know. It doesn't matter. If welding interests you, learn to weld. Because it's not that you can weld and fabricate metal. It's what you fabricate, how you fabricate it. There's people that go into businesses all the time. And their friends and family say, oh, no, don't do that. There's a million people already doing it. Well, first of all, that means there's a market, doesn't it? And second of all, that person's going to bring their unique creativity to it. So welders can weld parts that go on trucks. And welders could also build systems for controlling inventory in a warehouse. And there's a million other things you can do with welding and metal fabrication. So it's not just, and this is the problem for most people. They think skill, employment, do what client or boss says. So when somebody comes to you and says, put these two pieces of metal together, the good welder can put it together really, really well. But the, the, the master artesian doesn't need to be told what to weld together, doesn't even need to be told what the concept is, doesn't need a client, will build something that can be sold. Just like computer guys. There's a million of you computer guys. You can come to a guy like me, you can work for me, I can pay you, you can build a system, I can make money with it. Why aren't you building your own systems to make money with? Because you're not creating, you're responding. So whatever your skills are, learn not just how to do the skill, but learn how to conceive and create with them. That's how you become valuable to a community, whether it's rural, urban, or suburban, or global. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. Uh, question is about uh, money supply. If, uh, if the majority of money is brought into the system... Uh, from bank loans and mortgage loans, that kind of stuff, and that market has slowed down quite a bit. Um, does it make sense that the Federal Reserve would need to print a certain amount of money to uh, basically keep their their steady rate of inflation that they like to see? Um, could, if they were not printing money, would it be possible to actually have a deflationary period? Uh, thanks for your help. Bye. Yeah, see, that's exactly what's going on. You, you've, you've hit the nail perfectly on the head. It, but it's there's two components to the monetary supply that need to be understood, and this is the part that the people that just want to scare you with inflation um, and sell you gold or whatever else they're trying to sell you that day uh, never explain, even though most of them do understand it, they just have no interest in explaining it to you, because then you start to ask more questions, and you start to think more rationally. It's not just the, the, the number of dollars, but the speed at which they move through an economy, and the speed at which they multiply as they move. So, money can move with or without multiplication, and what I mean by that is, if a lot of people are buying cars, it doesn't necessarily multiply the monetary supply, it just moves it. That's one component of velocity, and that's the main component of velocity. And vo velocity all by itself can create inflation and, and aggravate inflation just on the fact that the supply has already been increased, and now the money starts to move. So think of it like a dam. All that water's there, but it's not doing any damage to the houses in the valley, right? 
cut a hole in the dam and watch what happens. Eventually the whole dam blows out and it destroys the houses. So it's velocity. So all this money's been created. Where's the inflation other than a little bit we see here and there? Well, like you're saying, the banks aren't loaning as much. People aren't spending as much. The money's not moving due to spending being held back and borrowing being held back. If you go to the debt clock right now, about the only thing you'll see growing as far as debt is the government borrowing its ass off, which is creating monetary printing, and student loan debt. If you go look at credit card debt, it's going down. Mortgage debt is going down. America's not spending, and they're not borrowing. So it's holding. So what the Fed's doing is we'll just keep shoving money in there until some of it's going to move. And we're going to get some inflation. We have to have this 2% inflation every year. If we don't have that, we're, we're dead because the system's designed to go one way up. They've created a system that requires perpetual growth and perpetual devaluation of the money supply, perpetual expansion, and you've put it into an economy and a nation whose population grew, whose, whose economic output grew, and it, it managed to work for all these years, and we've kind of plateaued. We're not a population stock growing highly other than immigration, and even that's not that big of a growth curve. Our output, we've outsourced all our output. We're not doing things. We're not making things. So the only thing they can do is inflate things that are basically non-productive. So if I'm selling houses and I'm building them, I'm producing houses. But if I, I don't, my population is only growing by so much. I only have so many houses. They're so old. They need to be mothballed and knocked down and build a new one. So now I'm mostly selling new houses. So how do I keep the illusion of growth when all I'm doing is moving the houses around between people? Instead of building lots and lots and lots and lots of new ones like they did in the 50s and 60s. Even the construction boom of the 80s and 90s was nothing compared to the post-war boom. I mean, there were whole places. It was nothing but a field turned into massive groups of suburbs overnight. Man, they were turning houses out back then. How do I create the illusion of that? Well, I make the, when the guy sells the house for it to cost twice as much. And I do that by pumping money in and making the money easy to borrow. And the only place they can pump the money now... Is into the banks that sit on it because the banks know what's going on. They're pumping it to themselves so they can try to survive when this thing falls apart. And then they can pump it into kids that are dumb enough to pay $80,000 for a freaking degree in basket weaving or bitterness studies or whatever the hell they're studying today. And they can pump it to the government because the government will spend it no matter what. And everybody else is holding back. This economy starts to recover. Here's what happens. That money starts to move and multiply like you ain't never seen. The Fed goes hand over fist trying to pull it out of circulation, to pull it back, to control it, to control it. They start pumping interest rates up a little bit. But in the end, we're headed for financial oblivion and a reevaluation of currency. That's where we're going. There's no way out of it. But yeah, you're right. It's exactly 100% correct. The reason that they're printing so much money is because they're trying to force money to move that's not moving. They're making money so cheap that you lose it by holding it. That's what they're trying to do, trying to force, not the big banks. They could give a damn. They are the big banks. They want to force the little banks to start opening up lending just because they're actually losing money by holding it. So they got to get rid of this. I got to loan it at a leverage point. I got to get rid of it. That's the, the mentality they're trying to create. It actually costs you to hold. The only way you can make money is to get rid of it. Loan it out. Double it overnight by loaning it out and writing a blank check for more money that doesn't exist and bringing it into existence. You're dead on. That's what they're doing. Let's take another call. 
Hey, Jack. I hope uh, the audio quality is uh, good enough for you to take me. I just got out of work, and uh, matter of fact, just ran out of the gym, so I'm probably a little heavy breathing. But um, I just came into a bunch of gourds and stuff, pumpkins and that sort of thing, you know, from holiday uh, uh, decorations and whatnot, and I uh, figure they're still pretty good. They're not the, the rotten ones. But um, I was thinking about maybe um, skinning them and cutting them up as far as... Uh, Maybe just having chunks to use in making uh, a butternut squash soup or uh, kind of more of a harvest gazpacho or uh, even uh, smoothies, you know, with avocado and whatever else uh, for a green smoothie type deal. But uh, I know um, putting stuff like that up, um, I'm sure much of it you have to blanch. And obviously I'm not very good at that sort of thing. That's why I'm calling and asking the expert here. Um, would... Cutting, would skinning and cutting up the um, pumpkins and the gourds and whatnot, would that be good to put in a Ziploc bag of some sort, then dumping that bag into a pot of boiling water or whatnot, and I'm assuming it's three, five minutes, probably no more than ten or whatever to get them good and blanched or whatnot uh, to see if they wouldn't be good to freeze for later. Um, I'm probably going to try to use what I can at first blush, uh, after first skinning and cutting them, uh, I guess making that raw. But uh, just uh, would like to hear your thoughts and opinions on whether that's a good, quick, uh, down and dirty way to blanch them and put them up for turning into uh, something later on. Thanks so much, Jack. Appreciate all you do. Take easy, buddy. God bless. Bye. Okay, I'm going to try to make this easy for you here. Um... First of all, if it's a gourd, it's probably not really good to eat. So your pumpkins, your true winter squashes, things like that, you know, they're reasonably uh, useful. Now, I am not a fan of, of freezing winter squash. And if you start cutting them up, especially your bigger pumpkins and all, you'll see why. It's not that you can't do it. It's how hard it is to cut them. It's almost like cutting stone. I mean, cutting winter squash is tough. So, for instance, when I can winter squash, what I do is I cut it into pieces and I put it into either a steamer or my pressure cooker and I steam it or pressure cook it till it's soft. So I can just take a knife and just, just slit the skin right off of it. I cut it up into cubes. I put it in cans. I cover it with water. I pressure can it. And then when you take it out, you drain the water off, you mash it up, and you use it for things like squash soup or, uh, you know, butternut squash soup or like cookies, or breads, or pies, and things like that. It's not really eating it you know, cubed up or whatever at that point. To do it for freezing, what you want to do is you want to peel it, cube it up, and you only want to boil it for about three minutes. And then you can drain it off really, really good. Well, actually, as soon as it's done boiling for about three minutes, drench it in ice water, drain it off really good, and freeze it. And the way I always flash freeze anything from squash cubes to green beans to block broccoli florets, get yourself some cookie sheets and some wax paper, spread it all out on one layer, and if you have a chest freezer, it's much easier, put it in the freezer for maybe five, ten minutes until the outside's frozen, open it up, quickly throw it in a Ziploc bag, zip it up, and leave it in the freezer to freeze solid. That way it'll all, you'll be able to separate it. It won't mash together in a big mat. And just keep processing your groups like that until you're done. That's the best way I've... Any, and that way when I want a small handful of green beans to go in a stir fry, I can take out a small handful. If I want a big handful, I can take out a big handful. So that's how you do it. The problem you're going to have is when you start trying to cut and cube up squash this way, you're going to find that you know you need a sharp knife and you need to be careful. It's one of the easiest things in the world to cut yourself with. So there's two other things that we can do here. One I've already described, can it. 
because that way you're going to cook it until it's soft and easy to work with. If you freeze it like that, it just it's not as good. I'll just put it to you that way. It's better to can that type, but you could do it. But you are you are basically freezing squash that you're going to use not in pieces, but as uh, you know, like for a soup or something like that, or mixed into a bread or what have you. And it, and it is good for that. Let me give you the easiest answer. Most winter squashes are easily going to store in a cool, dry place without refrigeration for four to six months. So unless you have an absolute buttload of it, just keep it in a cool, dry place and use it as you need it. That's the whole point of most winter squashes. They don't require a lot of processing to be highly useful. It's also something to be careful with how much you get for free or how much you grow. Because most people are only going to eat so much of it. But I'll give you a, little, a great little use for it. Um, recently, I did go through the process and cube up a, a butternut squash. Um, I did it for fresh use, so it's hard to work with. But basically what I did is I split it in half, and I steamed it for about 10 minutes to soften it a little bit. And I worked I pretty much threw the bowl away because the necks are so great and those and easy to work with. And when I peeled it, I'm not trying to peel it real thin, I, you know, and I cut it up into some cubes and I ended up with a, it was a small one, so I ended up with about a cup. I made a shepherd's pie. Yes, Jack Paleo Spirico ate some potatoes. A little bit of mashed potatoes on the top to pull it together. That's how you make a shepherd's pie. Ground lamb, green beans, um, corn, and instead of carrots, I used cubed squash. It was excellent. And the mind sees what it expects and a couple times I had to remind myself, this is not carrots, this is squash. Worked out really good. So my my first choice is if it's going to be used anytime in the next four months, you can keep it cool and dry area, don't do anything to it, cut it and use it fresh. Second, canning. Third, blanch for three minutes, soak in ice water, flash freeze. But be careful and don't overdo it. Ask, you know, go ahead and make some stuff with fresh squash. See what you really like and get a feel for how much you really need to store and maybe give some of it away, donate it, what have you. Uh, let's take a, another call. Hi, Jack. This is Andrew calling from Michigan. Um, I had a quick question for you about your thoughts on purchasing land that is adjacent to state land. Uh, up here in Michigan, there's lots of large tracts of state land and I'm kind of torn between, um, the good and bad between it, um, one of the good side is, is basically you have however big of a state, state game area in your backyard, which is almost like your backyard. The downside is, is for hunting and things like that, I see it a problem that you may have people trespassing on your land just in the claim, I don't, or I didn't know. Um, just wondering what your thoughts were on that. Um, the good work, I appreciate all you do for us. Thanks. Uh, the answer, like most things, is it depends. Um, if you're in Pennsylvania and you're on state game lands and you're bordering that, then in deer season you're going to have a literal sea of orange most likely, in most instances. If your area is kind of difficult to access and you're on a border that's almost all like you have neighbors and that whole edge of that piece of state land is privately owned, And then the main way that hunters in public would access it is from like a you know that you know half a mile or more away. You'll have less, but they'll still be there. Um, if you have land bordering things like state land, it's very important that you post it because if you don't, 
even if the person is lying, it's a reasonable assertion that I didn't realize I strayed off the state's land on your land, even though most of those lands are they're posted themselves, like the forest state forest boundary or state game land boundary. You need to do your own posting, though, and you need to do it at a distance that's reasonable for people to see if you want them to stay off your land, especially like if your land's fairly large and I could be onto your land and still not see your house or see that anybody's living there. And it's good for people to see anyway because that says to them, hey, there might be somebody over there because not all your hunters are really smart. You live through part of the year with worrying about a round coming through. So game lands I'm less in love with the idea of being adjacent to than I am with things that are more like larger pieces of land like state forest and, and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, you have people. And one of the reasons you may be trying to move to a place like this is to have less people. The other side is you do have all this wonderful land with access. Um, I think it's very situationally dependent. I think it would be a really good idea for you to talk to people that are already living there and say, is there kind of like a time where there's a lot of people around here and they're not really around here? And what are those times or what's it like? You know, do you like it? Do you have any concerns and things like that? That would be a great thing to do. Just, just you know, you're looking at the house. Go down the road and talk to a neighbor. Hey, I'm thinking about buying this place up here. Um, I've noticed that we're on, you know, what's it like? Is it good? Is it bad? Are there problems? Because you could find in one place, people are going to say, you know what? You don't see anybody out here except deer season, but that's crazy. Hell, we take a vacation during deer season because we're afraid we're going to get shot. You might go to another place and they might go, There's people here all throughout the year, but it's never really that bad. And you can go to another place and your neighbors are going to say, you know, um, you hardly ever see anybody. It's kind of weird. So it's all about land use. What's the culture like? Um, what's the area like? What's the area known for? So I think you have to make those just every time you make a decision like that, you have to do so with kind of an open eyes to the individual situation on the ground. To me, it's almost more ideal to be close to properties like that, right? Not necessarily have it abut your land, but to be close, to be able to maybe, you know, even walk down the road a mile and then access land like that. It would be preferable. One of my real concerns with ever owning land that abuts public land, and again, I think there's places where you'd go, that's great. You know, Corps of Engineers conservation land. You know, might be way different than state game land, um, depending on where and when. But all of a sudden, you've got this government land abutting what you're doing. It's a greater possibility of government intrusion because you're doing something that's contaminating groundwater. And that's always a risk, but it's a bigger risk. So my answer to that is it has to be situational, individual to the situation. My gut is always... It'd be nice, but no. But I've looked at pieces of land that just weren't in the cards for me to buy where I went. It would be a huge asset. And I've looked at other pieces of land and went, there is no way in hell that that's, it's a, it's a huge liability. So you got to do it, uh, one-on-one, -on -one, you know, one-on-one -on -one assessment. But definitely talk to the neighbors. And, uh, let's take one more and we're done for today. Hi, Jack. This is Dan in Florida. I've got a question about whales on relatively flat Florida land. Um, we own a piece of property that we want to permaculture as much as possible. Um, I know that you say a swale should be uh, approximately six feet wide, three feet deep, and when you dig the swale, the, uh, 
the dirt he takes out of the trench should go on the downhill side of the swale and be loosely packed. The problem with land like mine is uh, if I take three feet of dirt, put it on the downhill side, the downhill side quickly becomes the uphill side because I do not have three feet of drop um, over almost any part of my property, uh, certainly not within a six or 12 foot or 20 foot uh, distance. So how do you do swales um, on a property like mine? Do you do them smaller? Do you uh, take that dirt and put it on the uphill side to create a, uh, a, a greater differential uh, between uphill and downhill? I'd uh, love to get your answer on this. Thanks for taking my question, Jen. Uh, I've had a lot of things I've wanted to say about swales, the, including that I didn't say during the part where Paul and I answered the other caller today, uh, of things that have been misunderstood that I've said recently. Let's start out with something, and then I'll get into answering the questions here, because you, the, the caller, and not, no offense to you, but you've got this all wrong. You, you, the, some of the assertions here are just absolutely 180 degrees backwards from reality. Um, but I said recently that swales are best for forest systems. They're forest-growing systems. And then people have come back and said, well, what if I want a pasture? What, what do I do then? Well, terraces would be one really great way to do that in the right situation. Um, sometimes you live in an area with such a, an adequate supply of rainfall for something like a pasture, you, you, you don't need anything. If you have pasture that naturally grows, great. A little bit of swaling in that pasture might make it more sustainable, more reliable, but it would be a really good idea to plant forests on those swales. So if I have two swales in a system, folks, and let's say they're a hundred yards apart, if I have a 20 yard wide forest like strip along one of the swales, a little bit above it and a little bit below it, And then I have the one that's down, you know, downhill 100 yards, and I have like 10 foot wide strip there. Well, I've only taken, you know, even if it's 20 feet wide, 20, 20 yards wide, I've only taken 10 yards on each side of that swell. I still got 80 yards of open space. I can run that system like a savanna. That can be pasture. And maybe there's clumpy pieces within it. Maybe there's trees there that come out of that denser forest structure, more spaced out in the, like an oak savanna style situation. Right, I can build whatever I want. It's just that when I say swells are for forest systems, I'm not saying they're for redoing the redwoods. I'm saying they're for permanent perennial plantings, bushes, trees, shrubs, vines. But remember what comes with that, another layer, ground cover. And the ground cover comes out to the edge, and that's your pasture. All right? So I wanted to clear that up because people get confused with this. Right? Okay, now... The concept that, okay, I have this very minimal slope, and I'm going to take a three-foot deep, six-foot wide, cut a swale in on contour, bring the dirt to the downhill side, and now my downhill side is the uphill side. No, it's not. It, 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 it's almost inevitable. I don't care. If it's so steep that this is not true, it won't hold. Right? When you take dirt out of the ditch and you put it on a downhill side, The berm you create will be higher, especially at the top, than the lip of the swale on the backside. Now, if you see me or anybody else draw a swale on a whiteboard or a chalkboard or put in a presentation, you always see this big, like a 45-degree slope. 
Very few of these systems are going in on 45-degree slopes. The reason they do that is the same reason that if you had a kid that was acting in a play that was supposed to be brushing his teeth when the teacher was helping him get ready for the play when they're going to put the play on for everybody in the auditorium, and he's standing up on that stage, and he's brushing his teeth the way he would do for real in the bathroom in front of the mirror, says, you need to make bigger movements, Johnny. Right? You need to like, if you were really doing it, like you'd almost be brushing from your nose to the tip of your chin, because the guy in the back of the auditorium can't tell what you're doing otherwise. You have to exaggerate it so it becomes obvious what's going on. So when you see somebody draw this big, giant, you know, slope that's had this swale in it on a chalkboard, it's so your head will understand there's a, there's a slope there. I get from all the time, my ground is flat. There is no runoff. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. I, and I know I'm getting mad here, but it's because I, I, you can't tell, and I'll tell you why you can't tell me that. If you had no runoff, you get one a really big rain event, about four inches of rain in a couple hours. That would mean that you would go out, and if half of it was able to penetrate, which is about all you'd get in most places of penetration, at best, it would be half of that rain would penetrate. There should be two inches of standing water not moving in any direction like a lake, as far as you can see in all directions. It should be a two-inch deep flood. And you go out there, and there's a little puddle of water here and a little puddle of water here, and most of the ground's not covered with water. You know why? It went somewhere, and it didn't go straight down. It went away. It flowed. It moved. If Lawton can find contour lines 10 miles from the Dead Sea in Jordan... There's contour lines on your property wherever you're at. So this is not so much directly for the caller. This is for everybody with this flat land stuff. In fact, swales make a more dramatic impact on land that appears flat than land that looks really steep. They work everywhere. And you have to understand that you got water catchment coming from not just your land, but anything upgrade. Maybe miles away at certain, in certain situations, including hard surfaces like your neighbor's roof or a road. You got a road coming down in a ditch, you know, sometimes there's a potential to kind of take some of that water off of that road, that big hit of water. It might be, that road might be a mile long, a hard top. So there's always these sources of water. Now, let's understand about, I take the dirt out of the ditch and it's a, it's a, it's a six foot wide, three foot deep ditch. Now, That's kind of a standard large-scale swale. When I say that's the standard answer, that's I want a forest-based system. I've built little bitty swales on my property. I showed you guys videos of them. They're about a foot wide, and they're about a foot deep. Right? And they work. And they completely killed the erosion, and basically there's a little pasture there now. You can scale them down. It's just what is the ideal purpose is what I'm talking about when I say forest. Now, before I get to this whole uphill-downhill thing, Understand this. When I think I've said this already, but I gotta say this again. When I say forest, that doesn't mean giant forest. It could be built with dwarf trees. It could be built with bushes. The, you could have, you know, there's a shrub layer and a, and a, a sub canopy and a canopy layer. You could build a forest structure where your canopy is your biggest true shrub. And a smaller shrub is your sub canopy. And a smaller shrub, right? You can do, this is, you gotta, it's like a paint by numbers world and you get to choose the picture and the numbers and the colors and what color goes to what number. We're just talking about structure there. But okay, now, let's get to this caller's question. So I can see where this would be confusing. 
I mark my contour line. Okay, now understand, that's the contour of the land. That's, that's Mother Earth. That's what I walk on. That has a compaction that's consistent for miles. Right? Unless there's a place where it's been severely compacted or severely loosened. Pretty much when you look at a couple acres, the, the ground is about the same level of compaction everywhere. So water behaves the same way. Okay? Now I mark my, my contour. My contour is in the earth structure, not what I'm building. Now I dig out my ditch, whether it's a one foot, you know, one foot wide by half a foot deep mini swale, or a full-on Jeff Lawton desert swale, six feet, three feet deep. Either way, I dig that swale. The bottom of that swale's on contour. It's dead level. The top lip of that swale's on contour. It's dead level. The front lip, not where I put the dirt, the front lip of the swale is dead level with itself for the full duration of the swale. The dirt is sitting on top of that, and it's not compacted the same as everything else. It's loosely compacted. The water is going to behave absolutely the same in that swale until it gets to the lip. And when it gets to the lip, it's going to start soaking in to that dirt that you put on the downhill side. Here's the other thing, though. At one or both ends of the swale, depending on how you decide to do it, there'll be something called a sill. The lip of that swale where that sill is will be about two inches, ten centimeters, lower than the rest of the lip. And it will be dead level. You should be able to put a spirit level on that sill. And if you're doing this with a, with a track hoe, basically your track hoe operator can just pack it down by pushing the ground and compacting it there. Okay, By the time the water gets to that lip, where you're even dealing with the earth that you've taken out and left uncompacted on the downhill side, your water's already leaving the swale and flowing gently over the sill. If you go at least a meter wide with your sill, two meters is better, Okay, but at least a meter wide and only have maybe an inch and a half to two inches at most of fall from your lip, the water will be very passive when it exits your swale. And it will flow into the land, and if you have the capacity, it's going down into what? Another swale, where it will eventually push out of another sill, and so on and so forth, until it gets off your property. And we might be filling ponds with this structure as well. And when the pond gets full enough, it will then overflow back up the swale and overflow maybe a half a mile away if it's a big enough structure. And this is all passive, and this water moves so slow as long as everything's level and on contour. So what about that big pile of dirt on the downhill side? How does that harm or be neutral? What's it do? Okay, if water falls on it, over time, when it's a little bit compacted, it's got some root structure in it, it's a really heavy rain, and not all the water soaks straight into it, it's going to work just like a mountain. At the very top of it, there's a point that's the divide. Some of the water will fall back to the, the swale. Some will go over to the downhill side. That's it. But you're only talking, if it's six feet wide, you're only talking about a three-foot strip because only half of it's going to fall back in. And where's that water going to go when it gets into the, the swale? Whatever gets retained by the swale, whichever doesn't go over by the sill, is going to soak into the earth, 
And it doesn't go straight down. It continues to move at right angle to contour. It continues to follow the runoff path of water on the land. It just goes under the soil through instead of over and across. Now, there, just to be clear, you're in Florida. There can be too much of a good thing. If you're in a place with buttloads of rainfall and everything grows and survives without irrigation already, a swale is something you do not need. If you only have moderate times where you need additional rainfall, you might need less swales or smaller swales, or maybe these big giant ones just don't fit into what you want. Okay, so it's not like everybody should have a swale. It's not like everybody should have a hoogle bed. You have to assess the situation and ask what your goal is. If you want ponds and your ground will hold ponds, I almost say you definitely want swales, and I'll tell you why. Your ponds will stay full instead of being these half-drained looking things in the middle of summer. You will hydrate the shallow aquifers in your land. You will hold, but if you have land that's already marginally marshy and you start swelling it, you're going to turn it into a marsh. It's fine if you want a marsh. Do you? You have to think about this, right? My problem that I have is I get so excited when I tell you how all these things work. I think maybe I over-deliver them sometimes where you think, well, I got to have swales. All right. If you live in a place where you go out in August and you look on the side of the, the, the hill and everything's freaking green in August, and you live in the northern hemisphere anyway, you probably don't need a swell. There might be a case to put one in, but you probably don't need one. But if you live in a place where everything's dead, it may be the solution for you. And it may not. It all depends on what you want to grow. But understand, too, again, I, I, I guess I really said this without a clarification about the forest thing. I want you to get it. When I say forest, I mean forest gardening. I mean agroforestry. I mean forest horticulture. I don't mean taking your entire property so that anywhere you walk, you look up, there's canopy. That's not how a natural forest system is. There's always openings and glades and edges and, and different things like that. And a forest garden can be 100 square meters, right? A forest garden can be 300 square feet. The size of a, a typical room made with dwarf trees and mostly shrubs and bushes. A forest garden can be an acre or two. A forest garden can be an interconnected grouping of these plantings that's an acre of three. But it's not all in one solid strip. It's in these lines and distributed patterns. And, it will, and if it's swale-based, then it will follow the swale. And see, this is where Paul Wheaton's right. If I went to Katarina's place, recepted his design, there's some swell work I could do there, but it would be minimal. There's so much moisture there. There's so much topsoil there. There's so much runoff there. She's got such a great spot down where most of this stuff was done that already has so much natural catchment. If I didn't do anything, I'd probably start putting terraces in. But that's, that's Montana in an alpine climate with a significant amount of rainfall. Even if they want to say it's not, it's pretty significant compared to Jordan, right? It really is. And the thing about rainfall is if you have a climate with minimal rainfall and it's temperate and it doesn't get too cold or only gets really cold for a little bit of the year and you've got it being mitigated with a, a microclimate created by Flathead Lake, which is what we're talking about up where Paul was for Sepp's thing, and it's actually one USDA zone higher than the surrounding area because of that, and but it's cool, 
then you can get by with less rainfall because you have less evaporation due to heat. Even though you do have some really hot periods of the year, it ain't from freaking March to September like it is in Texas. All of these things are situational. As I said earlier, it's like permaculture's a wardrobe. We have all these techniques, and the techniques are all these different clothes. And we can tailor them any way we want. We can mix and match. We have to match them to our goals. But when you take dirt out of a swale and put it on the downhill side, of course the downhill side is now higher than the back. But it's loosely compacted. It's not Mother Earth. It's this, this structure. And the structure is allowing the water to escape at the sill at the end. Watch some of my permaculture videos. I, I make it pretty clear. I'll try to do more on this for you guys uh, in, in, throughout the rest of this month as we get ready uh, for our move. But with that, this has been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer, it's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living for today.